the Canadian Military History Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Lacroix. Music provided by the 48th Highlanders of Canada. Today's guest, Lieutenant General Guy Thibault, CMM, MSC, CD, Vice Chief of the Defense Staff. Well, you've always done a good job raising your boy there, Mike, so I'm very proud uh, that uh, he's joining a very fine, long tradition as well. The Royal Canadian Corps signals the oldest signaling corps in the Commonwealth, and a great tradition of service, and so I think your young fella is joining a great team. Welcome to the Canadian Military History Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Lacroix. I have been tremendously busy, which is why I haven't been able to put out an episode for quite some time. A lot of my online time has been spent on a course called the CAFJOD, the Canadian Armed Forces Junior Officer Development. I need to take some courses in order to move on and progress in the officer world. So, my online time has been devoted to completing the modules of the CAFJOD in order to progress on to the courses that are ahead of me, which is why I haven't had time to do editing. The modules are interesting, however, they do take quite a bit of time to complete. The other thing that's been keeping me busy is that during the May 2-4 weekend, the Grey and Simcoe Foresters received new colors from the Governor General. And that was a significant date in the history of the Grey and Simcoe Foresters. It was on the May 2-4 long weekend of 2016, and there were also quite a bit of preparations leading up to that point. So between some courses, some personal travel, and preparation for receiving new colors within the regiment, it has kept me quite busy. While I was setting up for the interview with our guest for today, we had a little sidebar conversation that was not part of the episode. And during that sidebar conversation, Lieutenant General Thibault, the Vice Chief of Defense Staff, commented on the excellent collection of people that I've had on the show. So the opportunity presented itself for me to give a quick update as to where the guests on the show are today. So we'll start off with episode 001, Colonel Mike Vernon. He released from the CF and he has re-enrolled and it looks like there is something coming up for him in the near future. So hopefully something in 41 Brigade Headquarters will have his name on the door. Don't think it's anything I can confirm at this point. However, it seems to be he will be headed in the direction of a significant appointment within the world of 41 Brigade. Lieutenant General Andrew Leslie has moved on to politics. He is now a member of Parliament. He represents the riding of Orleans, which is near Ottawa. Jumping ahead, W2 Stan Edgerton celebrated his 95th birthday. He chose to do that at the Hutchison Armory in Etobicoke with family and friends. Chief Warrant Officer Kevin West from episode 08 is setting things up to be succeeded in his post as the Canadian Forces Chief Warrant Officer. Lieutenant Colonel Clifford Baker, our World War II vet, regrettably passed away shortly after his episode in 2013. Master Corporal Jody Middick has also been elected to politics and he is part of Ottawa City Council and he is very active and he's also started up a podcast of his own. So you can look that up under the title of the Jody Middick Podcast. And I'm sure if you enjoy this show, you would enjoy his show as well. Jumping ahead to episode 14, Major Bruce Mayer is now Lieutenant Colonel Bruce Mayer. And he has succeeded to the position of Commanding Officer of the Lincoln and Welland Regiment since his recording in 2014. 
W2 Sam McGee has since passed away. He passed away in the spring of 2014 after his episode was recorded and posted and we do miss him. Lieutenant General Marky e. Haynes is continuing in his post as the commander of the Canadian Army. However, he will be succeeded at some point in the coming months. So right now it's July of 2016, so he is part of the succession plan within the Canadian military and he's moving on to a new post shortly. Quick little fact check, perhaps might be in order, but I believe Sergeant Tristan Bankasing has been promoted to the rank of Warrant Officer. So hopefully I'm not wrong on that fact, but I do believe that he has been promoted. Chief Warrant Officer Mike Lacroix has moved on to the world of commissioning and we lamented about that in the opening remarks. Brigadier General Rob Roy McKenzie has moved on to the appointment of Chief of Staff of Reserves at Canadian Army Headquarters. Chief Warrant Officer Emmett Kelly from Episode 32 has since retired from the Canadian Forces and he is enjoying all the spare time he suddenly has found. Captain Slade Lurch had been promoted to the rank of Major shortly after his episode in December of 2014. Colonel Dwayne Hobbs did succeed from the position of Brigade Commander of 32 Canadian Brigade Group. He was succeeded by Colonel Andrew Zalvin and he has completed his National Security Program which will open some doors for him in the future. For Episode 44, Chief Warrant Officer Scott Patterson regrettably passed away this past February and we do miss him and once again this seems to be what this show is all about preserving those stories and he did have the opportunity to appreciate the episode prior to his passing. Chief Warrant Officer Bill Darling did indeed commission to the rank of captain and he and I are in the same boat commiserating with each other on our various multitudes of paths that are laid out in front of us. Brigadier General Omer Lavoie from episode 49 has been promoted to Major General and he is moving on to a new position. And that gets us caught up with where they are now and what they're doing now. So that's our list of guests from the beginning all the way till now. So as I briefly mentioned during the earlier part of the intro, today's episode is with Lieutenant General Guy Thibault, who is the Vice Chief of the Defense Staff. So what does a Vice Chief of Defense Staff do? Well, basically he's the second in command of the Canadian Armed Forces. He's the commander of the Vice Chief of Defense Staff Group, and he's responsible and accountable to the Chief of Defense Staff and Deputy Minister to coordinate and direct activities to ensure departmental defense policy and strategic objectives are achieved. Now I did get that from the website forces.gc.ca. So the organizations that report to the Vice Chief of Defense Staff are the Chief of Program, Chief of Force Development, the Canadian Forces Provo Marshal, which is part of the Canadian Forces Military Police Group, the Chief of Reserves and Cadets, the Directorate of General Safety, the Director of General Canadian Forces Grievance Authority, and the Canadian Forces Support Unit in Ottawa. Needless to say, it seems that being the Vice Chief of Defense Staff is a very busy job and a very busy role. Here's my interview with Lieutenant General Guy Thibault. Lieutenant General Thibault, welcome to the podcast. Hey Mike, it's a great pleasure for me to be joining you. Thank you, sir. Now you and I first met when you were the commander of Land Force Central Area, which is now the 4th Canadian Division, and I was the Regimental Sergeant Major of the Toronto Scottish Regiment, and we had a conversation about partnerships to build new reserve armories, and I'm specifically talking about police partnerships, but we've now seen EMS and fire partnerships as well. 
Well, I think that's a, that period of my career back in Toronto was the commander of Land Force Central Area, as well as just standing up Joint Task Force Central as we stood up our overall Canada Command structure, was a time really to look at how we expand our partnerships with first responders. I think the Reserve has always had such a great relationship with many of the first responders through its members. So it was a really interesting time as we were looking at the Canadian Forces as opposed to being kind of a force of last resort was actually to be much more active amongst first responders. And so, yeah, that was a great period of time. Absolutely. And I specifically benefited by marching the regiment out of Fort York Armory and marching them into the brand new armory in Etobicoke, which is the partnership with the Toronto Police Service. Going from an armory built in the 30s to an armory built after the year 2000 was a little bit of a culture shock for some, but much appreciated on my end. Well, and I think that as we kind of look to the future, that model where we're in the communities that ultimately were called to serve, especially in the context of new kinds of threats to security that may be back in the, in the times of when our regiments that have got the great traditions in the Canadian military were stood up. We didn't really contemplate these kind of needs, but of course, from the time when we were together in, in Toronto with the Toronto 18, and as we've seen with new kinds of threats, I think us working together in much more modern facilities, but working uh, much more closely with our first responder partners, um, intelligence sharing, operational sharing. It's all, I think, a really important model for us in the future as well. Absolutely, sir. Now, before I get to the questions, I want to make a quick little personal reflection. I did meet you during the royal visit of the Princess Royal, Princess Anne, to the communications branch in Kingston, and you are the senior signaler of the Canadian Forces by virtue of your rank and appointment and your trade. However, I have to make a personal reflection as my son is the junior signaler because he's on his recruit basic training as a member of 32 Signals Regiment. So I thought I'd make that interesting contrast. Well, you've obviously done a good job raising your boy there, Mike. So I'm very proud uh, that uh, he's joining a very fine, long tradition as well. The Royal Canadian Corps of Signals, the oldest signaling corps in the Commonwealth, and a great tradition of service. And so I think your young fella is joining a great team. Absolutely. Now, sir, we can get right into the four questions, which I've sent you in advance. Can you tell the listeners why you chose to join the Canadian Armed Forces? My dad was a warrant officer in the Royal Canadian Air Force. He joined just at the end of the Second World War, never had any overseas service. And from my perspective, I had a little bit of insight into the armed forces, and I was aware that my mom's dad was a machine gunner in the uh, in the First World War, fought at Vimy Ridge, and uh, her brother was a, a signaler, in fact, in the, in the Second World War. So I had some family connections, but to be totally honest, I joined for much more, I think, uh, pragmatic reasons. My mom and dad never had a lot of money, and uh, so I was really interested in kind of a free education. And uh, so I happened to come across the it was the college directory for the Collège Militaire Royal de Saint-Jean, the, the Canadian Military College. And the program looked really interesting. It had lots of great academic programs to pursue. I was quite involved in sports programs and quite interested in a number of personal interests, band, and I was very active in different sports programs. And so the college just seemed to appeal in terms of really a great education and the opportunity to pursue a lot of interesting activities. In fact, I remember uh, in the, the college directory coming home and saying to my mom, look, it's all for free and you can play golf as well. 
And uh, I don't think I ever did play golf my entire time at military college, so a little bit of false advertising, I think. But uh, really, it was uh, with the uh, with the view of really getting a, a great uh, education. And so I, I started without really knowing what I was getting into. But that was kind of how I came to to join the Canadian Armed Forces. Now you kind of stepped a little bit onto the follow-up question. Can you shed a little bit more light on what you were like when you joined? You explained about your family, but what were you like as a young officer cadet? Yeah, I, I had spent uh, a lot of time in the Scouts Canada program, so I think I had been introduced perhaps into a little bit of the uniform way of life by virtue of having spent all times growing up in the in the Scouts program, and I ended up eventually becoming as a senior scout. I helped out as assistant uh, cub leader and then as a venturer, as a scout troop commander. And in fact, when I was posted to Petawawa in my first, uh, first posting, I actually was uh, co-opted into helping out with the scout troop there and then eventually ended up becoming the scout troop leader. So I had quite a bit of interest already in the outdoors and there was a very active kind of program there. So that was uh, something that really I was engaged with. But I was also at school. I was heavily involved in the uh, extracurricular programs. I played uh, football and baseball were my main two sports growing up and uh, certainly played at the city level. And then I was also quite involved in the band program and theater at, uh, at college a little bit of my early acting career and from, from that perspective all of those uh, had me being quite a busy young man I think and so that prepared me quite well uh, for my introduction into, into studies and uh, I was quite interested and still am uh, in in science and the technology and when I was growing up I was really really interested in astronomy and thought that maybe I'd like to be a uh, an astronaut someday and I have to say that that was probably a little bit in the back of my mind as well as perhaps uh, a pathway pursue in the military would be perhaps to be a, a pilot and then maybe pursue that into becoming perhaps part of the overall NASA program. So I think at the very beginning, that was part of uh, my motivation. Unfortunately, I was colorblind, so oh. uh, that didn't necessarily allow me to pursue any career within the Air Force. I guess it's really important when you have those flashing green and yellow lights on the, uh, in the cockpit that you know which one to push. <laughs> so that didn't, uh, didn't really work out for me. I see. And what was the world like when you joined, sir? Well, it, uh, of course, was a period of relative peace. So I don't think the Canadian Armed Forces uh, was necessarily uh, front and center for many Canadians. And I think when I joined, uh, I remember the advertisement for the Canadian Armed Forces was this little jingle of there's no life like it. So it wasn't something that I thought too much about the operational aspects of the Canadian Armed Forces because we had been in such a period of extended peace. And it really probably wasn't until my last year at military college when the Falklands War broke out. That sort of all of a sudden brought into a little bit of focus the operational realities of what the armed forces could potentially be called to do. And of course, we were still in the, the height of the Cold War at that point with our forces positioned overseas, and I would have a chance to actually serve in Germany myself before the wall came down. But it was a period that I don't think we really thought too, too much about really the operational aspects of what it was to serve in your nation's armed forces. Absolutely, sir. Let's move on to the next question. What is your most memorable experience in the Canadian Armed Forces or your greatest achievement? It's a tough question because as I 
almost culminate now with uh, 38 years of service in the armed forces. I've had so many, but as I reflected a little bit perhaps, and maybe it's the recency uh, effect that's kind of influenced me, I, I think that representing Canada in the inter-American system when I was attached to the Organization of American States as the first Canadian chairman of the Inter-American Defense Board. And this is an, an organization made up of uh, 34 countries within the hemisphere connecting Canada to all of our defense and military partners in Central America, the Caribbean, as well as South America. It really was, for me, such a, a rich experience, one in which I got to represent Canada, and I have to say that uh, it was a real source of tremendous pride for me to be able to wear the Canadian Maple Leaf and to represent uh, our country to many countries who don't know very much about us. And I think uh, I was a bit of a door opener for them onto the window of the Canadian Armed Forces and to Canada, and it was a, a bit of a special uh, experience for me that I'll cherish. Is there any event or anecdote that you can recall specifically from that period that might be of interest? Well, probably the um, when I kind of reflect a little bit on the relationships to this part of the world, Canada has never really had much of a, a deep relation with uh, the countries in the Americas, per se. We've had a couple of missions for the Canadian Armed Forces in Haiti and in uh, Central America back in the early 90s. But other than that, we don't have deep relations with these countries. And so I think for me, when I reflect a little bit on a couple of years that I spent down there, one example of something that really stands up is when we did the Conference of Defense Ministers of the Americas, and it was in Uruguay. And I didn't know anything about Uruguay before I went into this job, to be honest. And it was really interesting insight to, for me into the, the, the history of this region, because the Minister of National Defense, as well as the President of the country, were both formally held by the military dictatorships, and they were incarcerated by the military dictatorships, that basically formed the entire kind of swath of politics of what was going on in this region throughout much of the 60s, 70s, and, uh, and up and into the 80s, where there was this whole kind of focus on an anti-communist. It was, in fact, part of the Cold War that was playing out, but it was playing out in proxies in many of these countries. And so here we were a few years later, with uh, democratically elected countries now and members who had been formally held at the hands of former military dictatorships were now democratically elected. I thought, now that is real progress. And uh, so I think in many respects, there was features to this job where it really just helped me gain some insight as to a set of countries that are really our neighbors, but for which we haven't had too much uh, dealings with in the past yet. I think uh, as we look to the future, there's many countries in this part of the world that uh, really we ought to get to know much better and work with uh, so much closer, uh, such as Mexico and Peru and Colombia and Chile and, uh, and Brazil. And uh, it was a really uh, great privilege for me to have that opportunity. Well, I think any time that members of the Canadian Forces can work in a developing country, I think they always draw back very memorable experiences from that interaction, uh, regardless of the circumstance. Yeah, and I was working in Spanish the entire time as well, so that was also quite a challenge. I had to study the language for a few months before I went down, and then I was immersed working in Spanish for the two years, and it was a great way to get them to open up as well.
and I would love to be able to return back to that neck of the woods sometimes in the future. Now, sir, who is your greatest influence or who is the most memorable character that you've encountered during your service? That's a tough question. I think it's probably the toughest question of the questions because there's so many that pop out. But if I can only have one... Well, you don't necessarily have to have one. Okay. I mean, well, let me, uh, let me start with one, but I'll need to just mention a couple of others because they, uh, they all had such a, a great effect on me. And I would say that General Hillier, who I worked with as part of his key, was one of his key leaders when he commanded the International Security Assistance Force in Afghanistan, I got to see the qualities of a charismatic strategic leader who was at such ease with the politics, with the politicians, with the international community, with the senior military leadership, as well as with soldiers. And I have to say that General Rick ended up, I think, for me, being a role model that I, I learned so much from him and in the way that he had, a, I think, a very common sense but very smart approach to doing the business. And it was a real privilege for me to have worked with him for that year. And in some respects, he, as he went on to be the chief of defense staff, I had the opportunity in my jobs, including as commander of LSCA, to continue to see him in action. And so I'd say that he was both influential and, of course, uh, everybody who know General Hillier got to see him as a great, uh, memorable character as well. Absolutely. So that's kind of the first one that jumps to mind. The second is General Walton Tinchuk, and both of them for different reasons. But General Tinchuk, I probably knew almost from day one because I was, as a young recruit at CMR, as I had mentioned earlier, I was a football player. So when I showed up to see CMR Saint-Jean, there Walton Tinchuk was as a fourth-year team captain for the CMR football team, and I got to play opposite of General Walt, and uh, he was a big, charismatic, friendly, great team player back then, still as he is today, and his big, friendly personality was so infectious, I think, for everybody, and he just really exemplified from a, such an early age uh, great leadership, and it was obvious where he was going to be going, I think, in his career. He ended up, I think, as a very early part of my career, was a very influential person, and he still remains like that today as he left his time as chief, went on to the space agency, and he's now, of course, the deputy minister over at VAC, and we continue to benefit from his great, not only leadership, but what really his charismatic, caring kind of uh, style. And then the last name, and it's more on a personal note, I guess, is the relationship that a young officer can have with his first troop warrant officer. And I know, Mike, right. you know, from your own experience, Experience, you would uh, recognize, of course, the important relationship that uh, senior NCOs have for training and helping uh, young officers get adjusted. And so in my particular case, it was a guy named Warrant Officer Joe Savoy. He eventually retired as Chief Warrant Officer Joe Savoy. That was back when I was with the Special Service Force headquarters in Petawawa. As a young troop officer, you come in and it's a fairly daunting environment when you've been given the responsibility. In my case, I had a troop, 40 guys. They were all guys back in those days. Right. When you've got all of the responsibility on your shoulders, but you really don't know where to even begin. It was 
was a fantastic confidence builder for me to have somebody like Warrant Officer Savoy, who was kind of like a surrogate dad, I guess, in some respects, or maybe uh, maybe a favorite uncle. <laughs> I'm very grateful for the, the calm mentorship that he used to help me through those first couple of years of my career. Absolutely, sir. And if I can build on something that you did remark on, and that I believe the Signals Corps has always been very good at integrating women into their ranks, not to say that anyone has failed that task. I think everybody has stepped up to that task, but the Signal Corps has been especially good at integrating women within the Corps. I think that each of our trades and occupations, of course, first of all, have greater appeal, perhaps, to different folks that are joining the Canadian Armed Forces. And I think that the one thing which is true about communications is that we bring together folks who ultimately, whether you're the old teletype operators, would have perhaps been seen to have been more associated with women typists coming in. But in the end, technology, it's a field where all you really need to do is bring your creativity and your interest in technology to the problems that we face. And so I do think that in the in communications today that we find ourselves having some of the most diverse parts of the Canadian Armed Forces just by virtue of the interest and the accessibility by all members who are joining the Armed Forces that I think isn't true necessarily in, in other trades and occupations, or at least not to the same degree. But uh, yeah, I mean, the world has is, uh, is changed a lot. When I think back to my first posting to Petawawa, I couldn't even say that I, I would know that we had any women serving in the entire special service force. I know that there would have been, but I tell you, they would have been far and few between. Right. And when I was at military college, in fact, it was really the change that started. I was part of the last all-male graduating class from the Royal Military College. We've been endeavoring to continue to better integrate women and to take full advantage of the great skills and knowledge that women and all of our diverse communities want to contribute to the armed forces. And I think that's an area where the reserve and our cadet program, while the cadets aren't a program for which we're endeavoring to recruit into the Canadian forces, cadets in the program do have a a very significant number of them do decide to pursue careers in the Canadian forces. And uh, so, you know, I think that that's where we continue to benefit from the diversity that's in the reserve as well as the cadets. And over time, it's going to have a more impactful effect on the Canadian Armed Forces as well. Well, hopefully your interview opens the door to having more diversity on my own show. I, something that I've been struggling with is getting a more accurate portrait of what the Canadian Forces is reflective of today as guests on the show and it's something that is a challenge for me to overcome. However, let's talk about what the greatest challenge you had to overcome was during your service. I had two things that came to mind. One was an initial struggle. My initial struggle was kind of twofold. Uh, when I first arrived at uh, military college, I don't know, I, I think I was just so busy in all kinds of activities, looking at wing and sports, playing rep football and other pursuits. I wasn't as focused on my academics as I should have been. So I struggled for my entire time and it was a bit of a hit and miss kind of situation at that time. And so I really struggled with that. If I hadn't made it, uh, maybe I wouldn't have had my career would have been ended even before it had begun. So that right. initially was, I think, probably the a very tough part of my experience. But I think uh, in the career, in fact, I think it probably in some respects might have been hearkening back to the time that you and I were together in LFCA. And it was ref- 
reflective of a time when we were right in the thick of things in Afghanistan, having the experience of our fallen soldiers and the effects of those who were being injured with devastating life-altering circumstances as a result of, of our operations. And when I think back on that whole period, whether it be just dealing with the such a terrible, sad thing of the families of the fallen, memorial cross presentations to those who were behind and uh, thinking a little bit about how our operations uh, had forever changed the course for these families. That was a very significant personal and I think professional challenge to stand up to and to really carry on in the, in the face of uh, really the adversity that comes, I think, from uh, that kind of challenge. I have to say that while it was a challenge, it was also at the same time, perhaps, as I reflect back, a, a source of tremendous strength at the same time because I know that those families, despite how horrible their loss was and how sad uh, the loss was, they all stood up with such dignity. They were all so proud of the young men and women that had given so much. So it was a very fortifying experience at the same time. But I tell you that every time the phone rang late at night, I always remember the call I got when Mr. Girard was killed. Right. And for me, those memories, when I hear Piper's Lament being played, it all just sort of comes back to that period. And it was a, it was a very difficult period, but one in which uh, I think in the end has allowed me to kind of really reflect on the, the quality of the people we have in the Canadian Armed Forces that every day uh, go out and do their job. And ultimately, when push comes to shove and we're called to do our duty, we stand up and do our duty just like our forefathers have uh, throughout time. Well, one of the unsung heroes, in my view, are those majors and lieutenant colonels that went out to do family notifications every time that phone did ring in your office. They were on the clock four hours. You had to get your family notification done, getting dressed in your DEU, coordinating with the padre, coordinating with the family liaison officer, and making that trip to the family, finding them. Sometimes the families were split up, so you had to coordinate the notification between two different locations at the same time so that one parent or family member wouldn't know before the other next of kin in some type of dynamic that would be very difficult to manage as members of the Canadian Forces. And then the liaison officers that would continue helping those families and guiding them through the process all the way through beyond the service at what should have been the end. But some of those family liaison officers continue to have relationships with those families long after the loss of their family member. Well, I think what you're describing is so appropriate, and I think that you're right. They are the unsung members there that worked quietly and so diligently and so compassionately to help those families through the worst possible times. And uh, it extends right to the folks like Alan Cole and those who were involved in the repatriation and the funeral services and the Padres and uh, so many who, who played such an important role, the wing staff and eight wing who made sure that those families were as best cared for as we could. I'm proud of what the Canadian Forces did in that time with the families of, of our fallen, and we talk a lot about family and how important it is. Well, 
I think at that point we really demonstrated that we we did care and that uh, I know that we can never ever fill the void but uh, I think we did our very best that we could in very difficult circumstances very challenging circumstances to to make sure we did the right thing the best we could for those families and uh, it's not surprising to me that uh, members of the forces who were on those notification teams have stayed in touch with those families because you'll be connected now forever through that shared pain, shared experience. And uh, yet at the same time, I think for all of those who, who were involved, it was also, it's, it's hard to say it this way, but it was a bit of a, of a privilege to be able to, to try in some small way to, to help at uh, such a devastating time for those families. Right. And the Chaplain Corps was recognized for their contribution during that period of service by receiving a Corps commendation. Yeah, I think that you can forget sometimes. When you're going to come back to when I was describing the Canadian Forces when I first joined, you know, I don't think that we had really kind of understood fully kind of the role of the spiritual health of the Canadian Armed Forces. And so when budgets are tight, you start to say, oh, well, maybe we can we can afford to cut a few positions here. And same thing with our health services. We've forgotten ultimately why we, we needed some of these core capabilities and I think the Padres and our health services, medical services folks uh, certainly earned their keep throughout uh, these last 14-15 years. Absolutely. Well I know when I was an RSM one of my key go-to people every night was the uh, chaplain and I always set aside 10-20 minutes to speak to our regimental Padre. Sir we've come to the end of the four questions. What are you up to now? I I know there's something important coming up for you. (laughs) Well 5th of August is going to be a, an important day for me and my family. It'll be uh, the day that uh, we'll hand over in my functions as the Vice Chief of Defence Staff with uh, Admiral Norman, uh, the Commander of the Royal Canadian Navy, who's going to be coming in to replace me and replace me as I hang up the cleats, as they say, after, at that point, 38 years in the Canadian Armed Forces. And as I kind of reflect a little bit on my beginnings, as I said, I kind of thought I'd join, get my education done, and it was all without any kind of view as to what great adventure was lying before me. And so what's next, I'm not quite sure yet, except to say that I think in the first instance will be to reflect a little bit on the the ultimate fantastic career that I've had, the, the wonderful opportunities I've been given, and the simply amazing people that I've had the privilege to work with over these past 38 years. It really has been a remarkable experience and one that I'm very grateful for having been given the opportunity to live. Sir, I'd like to give you an opportunity to summarize your episode. Well, Mike, I guess what I'd like to say is that we are serving in such a great institution, the Canadian Armed Forces, and as I just uh, this past weekend, I was at the 99th anniversary for the recognition of the Great Battle of Vimy, and there was a bunch of cadets that were out there. We had a whole bunch of vets, obviously none that had served at Vimy, but many who had served in the Second World War and Korea and many contemporary veterans as well. And I think that it is such a great family that connects us over the generations. And for me, as I kind of look to reflect a little bit back and now to 
look to the future is to recognize that we're all just privileged to serve within the organization. I'll make it a little bit better than perhaps that which you found. Uh, and from my perspective, I, uh, I really think that when I move on here, I can move on with great confidence that uh, I have had uh, an effect on the people that I've worked with. I think I've been a great uh, team player and that I know that I have been uh, greatly influenced and I'm a better person for the experience that I've had as a result of being associated with such a great, great profession, profession of arms and uh, the Canadian Armed Forces. So it's ready for me to move on. I look forward to that and I appreciate uh, what you're doing to capture some of the life history of members of our great uh, family. Thank you very much, sir. Hey, Mike. Sir, I'd like to thank you for taking the time out of your busy schedule to be a guest on the show. I know this was a long time in the planning and the fact that we had originally discussed this during the Princess Royal's visit to Kingston. However, we finally lit the fuse today. Thanks again for taking the time to be a guest on the show. Mike, my very uh, great pleasure. Thanks very much for the opportunity. And you can give your, uh, your son a little bit of a pat on the back there from the senior signaler as well. Absolutely, sir. Thank you. Thanks, Mike. Thank you for listening to the Canadian Military History Podcast. I hope that you've enjoyed this episode. If you did enjoy the podcast, please leave some feedback on iTunes. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please send me an email at cmhp at gmail.com. Please let me know if you'd like me to read your comments on the air. While you're waiting for our next episode, please visit the website at www.canadianmilitaryhistorypodcast.ca or the CMHP Facebook page. If you'd like to support the podcast by making a donation, please click the PayPal link on the webpage. The next time you're considering buying something from Amazon.ca, please visit the Canadian Military History Podcast website and click on my Amazon link. A small portion of your purchase goes directly towards the support and maintenance of the podcast. However, your great price from Amazon doesn't change. All donations will go directly into the production of the podcast. All music is used with the express permission of the commanding officer. End tag music is provided by the Princess Patricia's Canadian Light Infantry. Views and opinions are those of the guests of the Canadian Military History Podcast and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Mike Lacroix Productions, the Government of Canada, or the Department of National Defence. This is a Mike Lacroix Production.